seems to really be the key thing here is that Israel is a U.S. ally, Russia is a U.S. enemy. Um, some of the, the anti-BDS, the state-level anti-BDS legislation even specifically uses that language. The Electronic Intifada. The Electronic Intifada. The Electronic Intifada. This is the Electronic Intifada podcast. I'm Nora Barrows-Friedman. And I'm Asa Winstanley. And welcome back to the Electronic Intifada podcast. I'm Nora Barrows-Friedman with Asa Winstanley. Um, and Asa, uh, we have a great interview coming up in a few minutes um, with Olivia Ketby of the boycott uh, the Palestinian Boycott National Committee, the BNC. And in that interview, um, which was done last week, we talked a little bit about um, the DSA, the Democratic Socialists of America. Um, and Olivia is a member of the DSA, but she was speaking to us in her capacity as a BNC coordinator. Um, but uh, since that interview, uh, the DSA has uh, basically obliterated the Palestine working group and has, um, you know, kind of nuked the, uh, the, the, the BDS um, capacity of the DSA. Um, so we wanted to kind of get a little update from someone who's been following this very carefully, uh, Omar Zaza, who's an activist and a writer and contributor to the Electronic Intifada. Um, Omar, thank you so much for being with us again on the EI podcast. I think you've been on at least once before. Thank you for having me. Yeah, this Omar, this sounds to me a little bit like the pure chicanery that has been happening in the Labour Party over the last, uh, well, since 2015, really. Um, it just sounds like um, pure backstabbing, basically. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Give us an update. There was a on, lot on of that happened. going on on the Labour Party left over the last few years, especially. So, you know, Amazing. talk us through this a bit. Explain yeah. it to me. Yeah, yeah. Um, thank you again. So basically, I mean, I think as you know, both of you has been have been following. You know, like all of this really. It didn't actually start with Bowman, but I think publicly is when it really came into focus with Bowman. So as you may Jamal recall- Jamal Bowman, yeah, the congressman, right. yeah. Yeah, there was a, basically the Palestine Solidarity and BDS Working Group of the DSA, you know, um, led the charge to, you know, call on the DSA to basically expel Jamal Bowman, you know, for his votes for, uh, replenished funding for the Iron Dome, but also for his really opportunistic, you know, uh, taking of J Street junkets, you know, to the Israeli state. It's appearing at J Street, you know, uh, town halls, basically to, um, you know, talk to them about whatever it is, basically. It's normalization of J Street and in addition to this funding, right? So after that happened, the working group, you know, led a charge to um, have Bowman expelled from the DSA. And this was interesting because I think it's one of those, what you'd call kind of the mask off moments for people who claim to support, you know, Palestinian liberation. And then you realize, you know, there's kind of a parenthesis there. They support Palestinian liberation unless you attack a politician they like, and then they sort of come out, you know, full Zionist essentially. And that's kind of what happened. You know, it was interesting to watch the way that this split you know, even the droves of supporters or erstwhile supporters, you know, people saying that, you know, this is just a rogue band of activists or wreckers or people who really have no idea 
how electoral politics work, you know, all of this stuff. And meanwhile, you know, the NPC um, issued some kind of a backpedaling thing saying, well, you know, what we're going to do is we're going to give him one more opportunity to prove he's an ally to the Palestinian people. And then, you know, if he does not fulfill that, you know, well, you know, whatever. And, and the so, NPC is like the national leadership body of the DSA, right? Yes, thank you. Okay. It stands for National Political Committee. They're basically the highest decision-making body. They're the, you know, by what they like to constantly refrain at this point, the democratically elected leadership of the mm -hmm. DSA. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, after that happened, um, you know, it sort of, I think public, this is the difference, like there had been tensions between the working group and the NPC for some time, but the Bowman is what uh, issue is what really brought it into focus. And I think the Bowman issue is what in many ways accelerated it, right? So <clears throat> basically, you know, now we're at a point where, you know, I wrote about this for Mondo Weiss, um, you know, the NPC actually decided to go ahead and nuke the Palestine Solidarity and BDS working group. And, you know, the language they use in the DSA is dechartering. And what that means is that the working group is officially disbanded. And they say that, you know, it's going to be folded into their international committee. So, you know, an organization that's tasked with international work as though Palestine has nothing to do with the United States, because it's not like we have anti-BDS laws. It's not like, you know, we have politicians who continuously vote for replenishing, you know, Israeli genocide or anything like that. And the other issue with that, though, I think in addition, this is important to know, in addition to the kind of um, principle of why this is offensive, is that that leadership is also going to be handpicked by the NPC. So it's basically, mm -hmm. we're throwing you into an organization that is tasked with international work. We're handpicking the leadership that's going to manage you. And, you know, it also basically this is a punishment for the working group within the DSA, you know, they are not allowed to have the steering committee members are not allowed to hold democratically uh, or sorry, hold the national leadership positions for one year. So they're basically on some kind of probation, you know, basically wow. for their principled work for Palestine. DSA Democratic Socialists of America. Um, it doesn't sound very democratic, but it does sound quite American. <laughs> uh, all British for that matter um, like hand-picked hand uh, yeah. sort of puppet leaders right exactly yeah um, and I guess one other thing I'll kind of throw in here is that I think it's important for the viewership to understand you know how the process of um, you know politicians being endorsed by the DSA works and you know there's basically two tracks for this right one track is that you're actually a DSA member you know, and who decides eventually to run for some kind of political office, and you run fully on DSA principles, you know, and that's what's called a cadre candidate, versus there are politicians who will seek DSA endorsements, you know, who are were not previously DSA members, and that's what happened with Jamal Bowman. Um, and so, you know, to, you still need to go through some kind of a vetting process for this, you need to be vetted by a local chapter and by a national chapter or sorry, by the national before you're actually uh, endorsed in this way. But what we found, you know, is that actually what had happened is that for his uh, national endorsement form, Jamal Bowman had said he is explicitly against, you know, and he would vote against funding, right? Funding is really military funding. And, but then what has happened, you know, and this is the other like really ridiculous thing is that revelations keep coming out that show that the NPC was basically duped by this canny politician and they continue to double down and attack the working group 
because I think they embarrassed them so badly for being such incompetent leaders. But so in an interview recently, Bowman said that um, he would have always voted. He said voting for the Iron Dome is something I would have always voted for, even if it was independent. Right. So this is important because I think, you know, to be fair and kind of throw people a bone like these. Sorry, even if what was independent. Even if uh, uh, if he wasn't endorsed by the the DSA. Right, Even right, if only for the Iron Dome had been presented within an independent context, he said, I would have voted for that. Like uh-huh. he says, I voted yes for that, and I would have voted for that on principle in general. Okay. So he kind of um, eliminated this pretense that politicians often use, which is, you know, that these uh, sometimes funding for Iron Dome or funding for other things is smuggled into larger packages. In this case, he said, literally, I voted for it on principle, and I would vote for it again, Got it. you know, Amazing. regardless of whatever the you know, whatever the pretense for it is. So, so what is the uh, DSA leadership's justification for that? How are they sort of justifying Bowman on that? Are they are they saying this is okay, what he's done, or are they just sort of saying, oh, well, um, you know, we may disagree with him, but he's still a good comrade? Well, what they're saying, I mean, this is kind of like, you know, people who are kind of cultists for Biden at this point, you know, Bowman can still move left, you know, we shouldn't be holding, you know, we shouldn't be punishing people who are, as you're saying, good comrades who can eventually come around. Really, actually, their ultimate excuse is that, you know, they're claiming that the Palestine working group um, was being antagonistic, you know, was bullying, was engaging in all of these um, hostile behaviors, and they had no choice, you know, as a good leadership. Sounds very familiar to me. Yeah, a little bit. (laughs) Bullying, yeah. (laughs) You know, and this is only, this is the Palestine exception. This is this is only applied to people who are advocating for Palestinian rights and advocating for the U.S. government um, to stop funding human rights violations uh, against Palestinians. Uh, I, I mean, this is uh, you know, and and what this also points to is that the is that there is a rot in the system, even on the so-called you know progressive. Uh, you know, left left leaning um, section of of you know the political establishment that the DSA is so willing to throw Palestinians under the bus um, in order to get closer to the center of power and and basically you know not be an opposition party to the Democrats the neoliberal Democrats but but essentially you know work with them and and you know, basically support them when it comes to um, standing by Israel. It's, it's uh, despicable. Yes, uh, 100%, you know, and I, I I think it's also important to note that at the end of the day, you know, a lot of these folks um, wear many hats and they're not just DSA, you know, and I'm talking more about the NPC and the higher echelons of the DSA at this point, you know, many of them actually have relationships with Bowman's office, right? And they're invested in having some kind of career through that. They're invested in doing things like being, you know, perhaps um, chosen uh, individuals to work on the campaigns that he's going to Mm -hmm. initiate. You know, for example, the Green New Deal is very big. You know, he's got the Green New Deal for Public Schools Act. Um, And so this is kind of a known conflict of interest, but it's not one that's ever really been able to be called out before. And, you know, that's 
at the end of the day, you have this large, you know, national organization, you claim all these socialist values, but you can still be somebody apparently who's really in it for your own career interests rather than actually advancing socialism. And there's no way to actually hold that to account within the organization, which is troubling. That's exactly the same problem in the Labour Party, you know, that during the Jeremy Corbyn years, it was exactly the same thing. You know, there was this whole layer of... Um, young opportunists i would say um who wanted a career in the labor party albeit under the um sort of uh corbynite wing the labor left wing and quite often these people basically smothered the project as they called it there's this jargon of the project and it was all a bit vague what the project meant anyway um of corbynism and yeah you know the the whole impetus of wanting to being desperate for jobs and being proximate to the sense of power really undermined any kind of actually existing socialism coming out on top yeah. in the Labour Party and it sounds like a very familiar thing. Uh, finally Omar what uh, you know you've been following this very closely um, you know what are people within the the, the working the BDS working group at the DSA doing right now what is um, is there any sort of organizing or appeals you know to the to the national leadership of the party to um, to reverse course and and take Palestinian rights seriously yeah thank you for asking that um, right now you know as of right now there is a statement that's been written by the working group you know, basically calling on the national leadership to reverse its decision to decharter. Um, and, the, you know, they're, so they're asking for sign-ons to that. They're all, they also have a form for people to email the national leadership, you know, basically reiterating that message. And, you know, I think also more broadly, it's really important to continue to call attention to this and to really vocally, publicly oppose the NPC's actions and say, you know, again, that, as you said, this is a Palestine exception. This has nothing to do with socialism. This is basically just honestly, it's mask off fascism at this point. And yeah, the, the the method used to do this is literally a fascist method. You know, mass reporting a Twitter account that you disagree with because you know uh, to Twitter, that is literally what fascists do to left wing accounts. You know, and it's unfortunate this has come from a so called left wing organization. Right. Exactly. And mass reporting it after you've already nuked to their website. So this was at, up until this point, the last refuge that they had to communicate. So this is a very, you know, calculated measure to make sure that the working group has no means of uh, communicating to its followers. Right. Amazing. Well, uh, Omar Zaza, thank you so much for giving us a quick update. Um, before we head into our fantastic interview with Olivia Katby of the BNC coming up in just a minute. Omar Zaza, you can uh, read their reports on the Electronic Intifada. Um, you're also with Eyewitness Palestine and Palestinian Youth Movement. Thank you so much, and we'll be, we'll be right back. Welcome back to the Electronic Intifada podcast. I'm Nora Barrows-Friedman with Asa Wynn-Stanley. As institutions and political bodies in Western countries initiate sweeping boycotts of Russian products, cultural figures, athletes, and corporations over the invasion of Ukraine, it has suddenly become justifiable. But as our colleague Tamara Nassar point, points out, quote, apparently only as long as it is Russia, 
Astonishingly, many of the anti-Russia measure, measures are being implemented by the very same organizations that repeatedly ignored or rejected Palestinian calls to sanction Israel, their oppressor. As friend of the show, Joseph Massad recently wrote in Middle East Eye, quote, the Russophobic campaign straddles the entire Western political spectrum, and it is fully endorsed by Western liberals and cultural elites. To help us make sense of the current situation is Olivia Katby, the North American coordinator with the Palestinian BDS National Committee, or the BNC, the coalition of Palestinian organizations that leads and supports the BDS movement worldwide. She joins us from Portland, Oregon. Olivia, thank you so much for being with us on the Electronic Intifada podcast. Thank you so much for having me. Long time listener. Second time caller, maybe? maybe <laughs> I think so, part. yeah. <laughs> well, it's good to have you back. Um, let's talk about the statement that was re recently issued by the BNC um, that points out uh, and calls to attention the absurd hypocrisy of what we're seeing around the world. Um, we see the rush by corporations to end all their business uh, ties to Russia. Symphonies are now firing Russian musicians if they don't sign a pledge, pledging um, you know, to, to hate Russia as much as um, Americans are supposed to. Uh, universities and cultural institutions are banning books and cultural work by long dead Russian authors and artists. Um, or even the banning of Russian cats at cat shows, when at the same time the BDS movement uh, has been constantly smeared and vilified by major corporations and institutions. Um, can you comment on what's happening and lay out how the BNC puts it, the West's response to the Russian invasion demolishes excuses for rejecting BDS against apartheid Israel? Totally. You know, as you mentioned, um, the statement that we put out cites the way that all of these politicians and corporations, I mean, even nonprofits and community groups um, in the US and the West um, are rushing to boycott, divest from, and sanction Russia. You know, they're putting out statements that say they stand with Ukraine. And many of these same individuals and entities either say, um, you know, when they're asked to do the same for Palestine, they say that they either can't make political decisions, they don't get involved in foreign policy, um, or even worse, they are the same politicians and same organizations who have been working to demonize and criminalize boycotts, divestments, and sanctions against Israel. Um, we have politicians in the U.S. who are trying to pass laws to criminalize BDS at the state level and are also pushing their states to boycott and divest from Russia. Um, governors are a great example. Governors of all 50 states uh, signed an anti-BDS letter a couple years ago. Um, now we're seeing a wave of governors ordering their state-run liquor stores to deshell Russian vodka. Um, here in Oregon, we have had activists, uh, unions, even some members of Congress um, call on our state to divest from NSO, uh, the Israeli spyware company that has a long list of human rights violations. Um, the Oregon Pension Fund is actually one of the largest investors in the private equity firm that owns NSO. Uh, our state treasurer and the Oregon Investment Council told us they can't divest from NSO because they are not allowed to make political decisions. Um, they have to invest based on what's a good investment, even though NSO is obviously a bad investment now that it's even been blacklisted by the Biden administration. But anyway, uh, two weeks ago, same state treasurer put out a statement saying he was directing the Oregon Investment Council to divest from Oregon's Russian assets because the state of Oregon stands with Ukraine. That is what he said. A very clear political statement. 
Um, so the hypocrisy is so incredible to witness here and just lies. You know, we can't make political decisions, but you can make political decisions for your allies. Um, and that seems to really be the key thing here is that Israel is a US ally, Russia is a US enemy. Um, some of the, the anti-BDS, the state level anti-BDS legislation even specifically uses that language, says you cannot target Israel as a US ally with boycotts. Um, and that's unfortunately the, the underlying current that we're seeing here. You know, there are no universal principles of respecting human rights and international law and, you know, opposing illegal or immoral actions. It's just about who is a U.S. ally and who is an enemy. Um, and I think last what I want to say here is that when these politicians and businesses are, are taking these actions against Russia, um, it's not BDS. We wouldn't use the BDS acronym to describe the actions they're taking because BDS is a very specific call uh, for very specific actions based on complicity, um, not based on identity or political opinion. Uh, and so with Russia, we are seeing, like you said, individual musicians targeted because they happen to be Russian, dead Russian writers, Russian cats. Um, BDS does not call for a boycott of individuals because they happen to be Israeli or because of their political opinion. You know, the, obviously people can make their own decisions. That is not what the BDS movement calls for. We call for boycotting institutions and companies that are complicit in Israel's regime of apartheid and occupation. And only in circumstances where individuals are either representing the Israeli state or a complicit institution, um, or are participating in, you know, those sort of like rebrand Israel efforts, then that might be grounds for a boycott. But it is really context sensitive, depending on level of complicity. And that is not the case with what we're seeing with Russia, not to mention the sanctions piece and how different that is than what BDS calls for. And, and we can get into that. Yeah, what you say about the justification for opposing BDS being that you're not allowed to make political decisions. I mean, we've, we've kind of seen this in the UK as well, except that the Tory government has just made it explicit. Like they, they just say, well, you can't, local government is not allowed to make decisions that differ from the national government. So, <laughs> and British, British government policy is to support Israel. So you're not allowed to do any kind of um, right. sanction that goes against um, national government policy. Um, so, I mean, it, yeah, we see these efforts, although, I mean, I guess the the keep the British government keeps saying they're going to change the law to, to ban BDS, but um, they're not, they're still not quite doing it. And personally, I don't think they will be able to do it either. It's a bit of a tangent there, but do you have a, a, a view on that? Are yeah, I mean, with the... I mean, not, I don't have a view specifically on what, what, is happening in the UK, but mm. I would say I think it just goes back to, you know, Israel is their ally and Russia yeah. is not, and that's what it comes down to. Yeah. So we've seen some self-proclaimed progressives that have insinuated that if you support the BDS movement, um, then you should also support sanctions on Russia as if these are the same thing. Can you talk a bit about the difference between US or Western-led imperialist sanctions? being tightened against Russia as they are against um, other, many other countries around the world, um, which are, you know, quite often socialist in character or at least are perceived to be official enemies of the United States. Um, can you talk about the difference between those kinds of sanctions and the kind of sanctions that the BDS campaign calls for? 
Yeah, definitely. So the call for sanctions from the BDS movement is very different from the very brutal and crippling sanctions imposed by the US and other Western powers on their enemies, like those we are now seeing started to be imposed on Russia and, you know, on Iran, Iraq, Cuba, Venezuela, these kinds of um, illegal and immoral sanctions are by design, their intention is to strangle the general population. You know, they restrict access to food, medicine, energy, other resources that people need to survive, um, essentially with the goal of inciting a revolt. You know, the US government has said this, you know, they strangle the people and they hope that people will blame their government and revolt and potentially overthrow it if, if their government fails to comply with US or NATO demands. Um, most famously, I think that the very brutal U.S.-led sanctions uh, imposed on Iraq in the 1990s um, are a great example of these kind of sanctions. You know, those sanctions on Iraq were estimated to have caused the deaths of over half a million children. Um, and, you know, we knew that was intentional. Everyone said it was intentional. You know, it was not just, oops, collateral damage. You know, very famously, when, when she was asked about uh, the half a million children dead, Madeleine Albright responded, we think the price is worth it. Uh, so the difference is that the sanctions we are calling for in the BDS movement are first and foremost about governments just fulfilling their legal obligations to end Israeli apartheid um, and not aid or assist in its maintenance. So that means banning business with illegal Israeli settlements uh, and apartheid and ending military security funding, um, trade and research, canceling free trade agreements, um, as well as suspending Israel's membership in international forums like FIFA, you know, things that are so hypocritically on display now with Russia. Um, but the foremost demand of the BDS movement is to end complicity. And that is really front and center what we mean when we call for sanctions. So the US not only, as we know, they fight any attempts to hold Israel accountable to international law, but we also provide Israel with nearly $4 billion a year in military funding. So ending US military funding of Israel, you know, that's not even a call for sanctions, but for fulfilling a legal obligation to stop supporting Israel's crimes against Palestinians. You know, that is not something that's designed to hurt innocent people, um, but it is something that we are framing as a sanction when we call for sanctions with BDS. And, that, and that's how it differs from, from these illegal, immoral sanctions that, that the West imposes on its enemies. Olivia, um, what can you say, I mean, more, you know, kind of circling back to just the like astonishing hypocrisy and double standards being applied um, to Russia um, while, you know, uh, institutions keep making up excuses why they can't hold Israel accountable or respond to calls for um, for the, the, the boycott of, of apartheid Israel. Um, the other day you were tweeting about this. Um, the Sierra Club, um, you know, uh, had had announced that it was um, hearing from, you know, BDS campaigners and Palestinians um, who were protesting the trips that that the Sierra Club was planning to take to Israel is kind of, you know, I mean, we we all see it as part of Israel's greenwashing campaign, of course, to try and like portray Israel as this like beacon of, you know, ecological environmental um, protection and and, uh, you know, all of that. So uh, as soon as the Sierra Club announced that they were going to not 
um, you know, hold these trips to Israel. Uh, the Israel lobby went into full you know, damage control mode and ended up pressuring the Sierra Club to reverse its decision just a, a couple of days later. Um, and, you know, and they said this whole thing of, you know, um, uh, we, we don't want to take a political stand. This is, you know, we, we don't believe in politics. We believe in environmental, you know, environmentalism. Um, meanwhile, they also um, published a statement on Ukraine. So what can you say about, about this as kind of an example of, of what we talk about when we talk about institutional double standards? Yeah, the Sierra Club is, yeah, another great example of this hypocrisy we've been talking about. Like you said, they put out a statement not too long ago um, saying that they stand in solidarity with Ukraine. Um, someone had flagged for us last month that the Sierra Club had these outings scheduled to Israel for this month. Um, that are essentially greenwashing trips, you know, framing Israel as a beacon of environmentalism, going to go do bird watching, um, saying nothing about Palestinians or the occupation, uh, though I think the description of one of the trips mentioned a Palestinian sunbird, uh, <laughs> which was kind of funny to us. Um, so we got a coalition together of Palestinian organizations, the Movement for Black Lives was in the room, Indian Collective, which is an indigenous organization, um, Jewish Voice for Peace, and we met with some of the executives in the Sierra Club and um, they were sent by Dan Chu, the CEO, who was not in this meeting, these meetings, but he like empowered them to make a decision. And they actually did recommend to him, but they not go forward with these trips. You know, the Sierra Club has been in a moment of trying to reckon with their very racist history as an environmental organization. Um, and they've made statements in, in recent years, many statements about standing up for black lives in these meetings, you know, they were all acknowledging what unceded territory they were calling in from when doing introductions. And we were just like, this is so tone deaf unless you're gonna cancel these trips. So we were giving them, you know, this opportunity to work with us. Um, once it got out, uh, you know, the ADL began pressuring them, the backlash began, big name funders were pressuring them. Um, and then Dan Chu, the CEO came out with a statement saying it was a hasty mistake, they'll reschedule. Uh, the trips to Israel for, for the summer. And when we talked to him, he was trying to say, oh, we thought you just wanted to help us make these trips more balanced, essentially, <laughs> I guess, maybe setting them up to meet with oh a Palestinian. Right. Uh, so the word Palestine or Palestinian never even came out of his mouth. It, this um, is a trend like in recent yeah. years. Like it's yeah. a real uh, quite strong trend with the Israel lobby in the last few years on the more liberal end where they say try and say well you can just still do these trips and you can um, right. also visit with palestinians you know right well. yeah play our yeah. concert in tel aviv yeah. you can also play a concert in ramallah if yeah. the palestinians yeah. want you to yeah yeah right. so we were very clear that no this is an active picket line from the people indigenous to the land and you are crossing it and there's no way to make a trip to an apartheid state fair and balanced there are no two sides or there are, you know, occupy or occupied, apartheid state, and those subjected to apartheid. Those are the two sides that you are talking about here. And now you are taking the side of, of the apartheid regime. Mm. So that's what happened with the Sierra Club. And I think, you know, more broadly, this is an opportunity for us to first to point out the hypocrisy of these organizations, like the Sierra Club, universities, other, you know, organizations that try to present themselves as progressive who are issuing statements standing in solidarity with Ukraine 
instituting divestment policies against Russia, boycotting Russia, you know, saying essentially, we have asked you to do the same thing. You have refused for these reasons. Now you're going back on your word and you're suddenly able to take these kinds of actions. Um, I think a lot of the time corporations and institutions say they respect human rights, especially corporations. A lot of them have like corporate human rights policies. They don't actually act on them. And this is actually the first time for many entities that we're seeing them act on their on their quote unquote values. So I think we should use that to hold their feet to the fire. Um, General Mills is another example. General Mills is a target of the BDS movement because they own Pillsbury and they manufacture Pillsbury products in the Adara industrial zone, which is illegally occupied Palestinian land. Um, they have a corporate human rights policy. They have repeatedly told us that they cannot do anything about this. They're respecting the rights of Palestinians who work at these factories. Um, they basically use Palestinians as like a diversity quota. Like it's excusable to do mm -hmm. business in an occupation because we're providing jobs mm -hmm. to Palestinians. Right. Um, now they are withdrawing their business from Russia. Uh, and this is an opportunity for us to point out for companies like General Mills, for other actors like, hey, by taking this action against Russia, you're setting this precedent for yourself now. We're just mm -hmm. holding you to your own standards that you are setting here with your actions. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, th I think we're going to see more of that. So, yeah, I, I've been thinking that a lot recently over the last few weeks with all this. I mean, to me, it's hysteria, like it's anti-Russian hysteria, where it's more like people want to be seen to be doing something about the bad thing. And so, yeah. <laughs> therefore, it's like, hey, you know, I stand with Ukraine. And right. there's and no... Like an uncontroversial... Position. Yeah, and you've literally got Boris Johnson, the Prime Minister of Britain. Sorry to bring it back to Britain again. Um, <laughs> you know. uh, 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 anyway, yes. Uh, so, uh, yeah, Boris Johnson coming on to a video on Twitter and saying, Slava Ukraine, like, uh, glory to Ukraine, this literally fascist slogan. Um, and it's like, yeah, I mean, but, you know, uh i read that um netflix dropped an adaption of anna karena um because it was written by leo tolstoy who's this you know long dead um pacifist um as we've mentioned i suppose but i mean it, so it is kind of crazy and it's like it, people are not thinking the implications through of how is this actually helping the situation how is it a targeted boycott in any way it's just well russian's bad let's boycott yeah. everything russian um, and bds has always been the antithesis of that um so but at the same time on a simple level i suppose it is like like you've been saying it is going to set precedence for people in a way where it's going to be able to uh, make people think again of sort of like well actually yeah we just boycotted everything russian so what's actually so bad about a targeted boycott strategic against, right against complicit they're no companies able, they're no longer able to say we can't take positions on foreign policy issues right yeah yeah and it, it it makes i suppose it i mean we all know that like these rules are not universal and they're not going to be applied in the same way however it does it will it will make it harder in the in, the, in these sort of ways for those these kind of pretexts to be put up so how do you think that um that people on the left and BDS activists, um, especially students um, and uh, trade union activists who've been trying to pressure their universities, for example, to break institutional ties with 
um, Israeli companies and Israeli institutions that are complicit involved in the occupation of Palestine. Um, how do you think those kinds of activists um, can, you know, use, I suppose, this kind of moment and these kind of precedents that are being set um, to their advantage in the BDS movement um, in the near future? Yeah, like I said, I think this is just an opportunity for us to point out like that these actors, universities, governments, institutions are setting a precedent for themselves. I think, for example, here in Oregon, where we've been campaigning against NSO and our state's investment in NSO, they've told us they can't take a position on foreign policy issues. They have to do it on whether or not it's a good investment. Now they're making a political statement on standing with Ukraine and divesting from Russian assets, uh, which I think the state of Oregon has like $122 million of Russian assets versus the almost 300 million that they invested in Noble Pina Capital, which uh, is the private equity firm that owns NSO. Um, and so I think, Amazing. you know, they are setting a precedent for themselves. Now, we know that you can take this kind of action. You are doing it right now. Um, not to mention it is a bad investment. Um, I think, like you said, Asa, it will make it harder for them to weasel out of not being able, you know, everyone always says our hands are tied. That's the most common response we get when we go um, up against big institutions with BDS campaigns. Um, and now they are proving to us that that's not true. I think it will make it a little easier. Well, finally, um... You know, th this is also an opportunity to um, put even more pressure on politicians who are, you know, changing their avatars to the Ukrainian flag while, you know, professing to be progressive or anti-war. Um, and, you know, I, th I think it, it, it would be good to talk about kind of how, how grassroots activists, um, anti-war activists, BDS campaigners, um, can can use this opportunity to to pressure progressives, especially um, as the midterm elections approach. Um, can you talk a little bit about um, you know people like uh, Jamal Bowman, um, who was supported by the DSA um, and had espoused a lot of Palestine you know rights language before his election. Um, and and now has 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 really backtracked. Um, as a BNC representative, what can you say about the positions of people like? Um, uh, so yeah, as a BNC representative, what can you say about the positions of people like Bowman um, and other progressives who are you know saying uh, that they stand with Ukraine? that they support a boycott of, of Russia, um, but when it comes to Israel, that's a, you know, that's a step too far. What, what can people do now? Yeah, so I think probably some people listening to this will know that I'm a DSA member for full disclosure. I've been active in DSA since 2016, but I'm speaking here as the North America coordinator for the BDS movement. I think we can talk another time about my, <laughs> my perspective as a DSA member. Um, yes. But I think BDS movement, uh, has been really excited about partnering with DSA ever since the organization endorsed uh, BDS in 2017 and then founded the National BDS and Palestine Solidarity Working Group in 2019 to commit uh, not just in principle to BDS, but in, in taking action. 
Um, and I know one of the tasks of that working group has been to give DSA chapters and organizers in the national organization um, the political education and resources needed so that situations like the controversy around Bowman are avoided in the future. Um, as the, the BNC, we don't interfere in like decisions like DSA and, and political parties in other countries make. Um, we did put out a statement recently reiterating our long-held positions, the first being that the BDS call is a picket line and traveling to Israel on propaganda trips, meeting with the Israeli prime minister, that is crossing the picket line. Uh, we also pointed out our um, principles on accountability and context sensitivity when it comes to politicians and their and their positions on BDS and on Israel. Um, you know, the U.S. is not the center of the world. There are so many political parties around the world who deal with these same issues, some who deal with them well, some who do not. Uh, and I think it would be good for DSA to take lessons from from these parties. I mean, Chile just elected a pro BDS president. That is massive. Um, so, you know, the US is not the center of the world, but it is the center of support and military funding and providing international legitimacy for Israel. And so I think it's crucially important uh, that organizations like DSA, who are having this huge rise in US politics, take that seriously. Um, and I think that the fact that this was such a huge controversy, you know, everyone was talking about it. So many media articles came out about it. I think it shows that they are taking it seriously. And there is a lot of um, there is a lot of action being taken inside the organization to prevent this from happening in the future. That's great. Um, my Siberian cat is behind us. Um, <laughs> his ears were perked when we were talking about cats. Um, <laughs> We are not boycotting him in this house. Um, <laughs> oh yeah, he's Siberian. Okay. Yeah, he is. Yeah. He's he's a great a great guy. <laughs> um, he he, uh, he always wants attention when when the microphone is on. Um, <laughs> finally, Olivia, um, what are some of the kind of most significant uh, BDS campaigns um, in the U.S. and Europe or around the world? Um, that the BNC is supporting and and what are you kind of um, anticipating in this you know next next coming year of, of campaigning? Yeah, actually, I don't know if you saw but some big news just came out this morning about the deadly exchange campaign, uh, which is a campaign that was launched by Jewish Voice for Peace um, to end police exchanges between US police officers and Israeli police and military. Um, a lot of those exchanges are um, facilitated by the ADL, um, and the ADL had this memo from 2020 that was leaked where they were really questioning, you know, continuing these exchanges because of this campaign saying, oh, are we actually doing a bad thing? <laughs> are, are, <laughs> are U.S. police officers coming back and um, instituting more racist, more harmful practices because they have trained with the Israeli military? And in that memo, they came to the conclusion that maybe we should end these trips because th there's been so much controversy created by this campaign by Jewish Voice for Peace. Um, now they have decided because this memo has come out, they're saying, no, we're actually, we wanna continue our commit. We're very committed to law enforcement uh, and we're actually going to expand these programs. So they are doubling down. Of course, um, <laughs> of course. But you know, Predictable. they did. They did pause the exchanges um, for almost three years. And, you know, of course, they'll blame the pandemic, but right. I, 
it's very clear that they were internally contemplating um, completely ending them because of this campaign. So I think it's an opportunity now for us to escalate this campaign. And it's just the ADL uh, showing <laughs> what their values are. You know, they're doubling down their commitment to the racist US police. And the ADL is actually the largest non-governmental um, trainer of US law enforcement, including ICE officers. Um, and so I think it, it is a line in the sand, should be a line in the sand for progressives that the ADL is, is not a progressive ally. And I think it, it is a big opportunity for the WHH campaign. Um, another big campaign happening in the US right now is a campaign called No Tech for Apartheid, um, which is being led by workers in Google and Amazon um, who are opposing their employer's contract, $1.2 billion contract uh, for a cloud with the, the Israeli government. Um, over a thousand workers signed an open letter to their employers, which is, you know, very, very dangerous for them. Uh, Google has retaliated against some of them, um, but it's a, it's a really good opportunity to highlight uh, the way that the, the tech industry at large is so complicit in, in repression of human rights and, and in apartheid. Uh, in Israel, and um, it's really cool that it's being led by the workers in these companies who are saying, you know, we just want to make tech to help people. We don't want we don't want it to be used for this horrible uh, purpose. Mm. Um, yeah, there's there's a lot of other campaigns happening, like locally in small coalitions around the U.S. Um, and I think this is going to be a really good year um, to to re-energize BDS campaigning. It's amazing, like this. I mean, this is practically breaking news as we're filming this, so it's kind of going to date the yeah. <laughs> date the episode <laughs> when it comes out. But that's okay. Yeah, um, yeah I mean, it, it it is amazing that this. Uh, I haven't had a chance to actually read what's the details of it, but um, the fact that this was even contemplated by the ADL is massive because, you know, this is. I mean, Nora, we should do a whole episode about. Oh yeah, we totally should. Yeah, like the history yeah. of the ADL. People don't know that the ADL, I mean, we know, but I think, you know, in America, the ADL is a very well-known organization publicly um, as allegedly a group that stands for civil rights, as a group that defends, you know, um, Jewish people. Um, but actually it has this history of um, not only acting as a lobby group for Israel, but of um, literally operating, aspiring, targeting American citizens and um, spying for Israel and spying in the 80s for the apartheid state of South Africa, you know, mm -hmm. selling these uh, files, this information on mostly American leftists and um, Arab groups and Palestine solidarity groups. Uh, black activist groups in solidarity with um, South Africans living under the former apartheid regime. Uh, and it operated the spy ring, you know, there's, there's a whole fascinating history there. Um, so for a group that is so deeply in bed with Israel to even contemplate ending these deadly exchange um, police training programs, I think is, you know, it does show that, like, it, it's, it's in the, in the, you know, there's this cliche if they don't call it the struggle for nothing, like the, these kind of long-term campaigns are hard like people work on them for so long and you just keep plugging away and plugging away i know you know as, as journalists writing about this area as well we're, we're always constantly repeating ourselves and it gets gets um weary and it is a struggle 
but it shows that struggle can work you know struggle works and it's uh it's uh, it's a long haul thing yeah it's interesting that you mentioned their their long history of of spying because uh one of the things that uh, police officers who went on these trips to israel noted was like uh israeli surveillance and how they used um plainclothes officers in a way many of the police officers actually the american police officers said we can't do most of the, of the stuff that they're doing because it's elite we would be in jail it's huh. illegal it's unconstitutional not that that ever stops u.s police officers from doing things but in what in what right. way in, like what was um, that they, they, they particularly commented on the brutal methods of um, arrest that Israeli police used. Undercovers. Uh, they, mm -hmm. they commented on the, the Hollywood style level of surveillance uh, mm -hmm. that they used against Palestinians and specifically the way that they utilize um, plainclothes officers in addition to like all the crazy surveillance technology, just the way that they utilize officers for spying. Yeah, like, um, like a, I mean, as you'll know, Olivia, like, uh, but to, to explain to our listeners and viewers that um, it's very common for Israeli uh, forces in the West Bank to use um, undercover officers to arrest Palestinians who are dressed as Palestinians, you know, mm -hmm. as, um, you know, consciously dressed up and they, they infiltrate Palestinian communities in order mm -hmm. to brutally arrest sometimes children, you know, for... For whatever it is on, on the pretext of whatever and um, the adl is going to be doubling down on, on <laughs> you know yeah. sharing yeah. sharing those values with u.s police forces um, right just astonishing um civil Olivia, rights yeah right yeah exactly <laughs> for some <laughs> definitely not for all mm. um olivia uh, give us the details of how people can link up with the BNC and um, where they can find you on Twitter. Totally. Um, we have a lot of different BDS campaigns happening across the U.S. If you go to our website, bdsmovement.net, go to Get Involved. You can find some groups that are working on BDS there. Um, follow the BDS Movement on Twitter, at BDS Movement. You can follow me on Twitter, at Olivia Cappy. Um, and yeah. Thanks so awesome. Olivia, thank you so much for being with us uh, on the Electronic Intifada podcast. Thank and you. we will check in with you in the near future. Absolutely. As these as these campaigns continue. Great. Thanks a lot. Thank you. Thanks for watching this video. Please subscribe to our YouTube channel. Hit like, leave a comment. These engagements help us with the YouTube algorithm and it helps us to get around Silicon Valley censorship as much as possible. It does make a difference. You can also support our journalism by going to electronicintifada.net and clicking on donate now. Thank you.